episode 99 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. 99 big episodes. Thank you for tuning in this week. We have a very exciting guest, very interesting guest with a lot to say about topics that I think people will be intrigued to learn more about. But before we get to that, my colleague, Julie Bartuka. by the way, Julie, how are you? I'm good, Tom. How are you? We're having some technical issues here today. You know what? Improvise, adapt, overcome. Exactly. That's the theme of the last two years. We just have a couple of, uh, or or just one brief news item. If you go to UConn today, there's a pretty interesting overview of UConn's Rainbow Center. It is June. It is Pride Month. Uh, And one of the things that I was interested to learn about is that, particularly for the Rainbow Center here on campus, the more important month in terms of programming and activity is October, because that's LGBTQ+. History Month. So they have a lot of interesting programs and activities planned for that month. And uh, June is really more about celebration. Obviously, on a college campus, June can be a little somnolent because most of our students are not here. Right. Um, But there's still some stuff happening. And and then October, we'll have more info about what's going on. But take a look, uh, today.uconn.edu. And now let's meet our guest this week. Uh, This is someone who, as a PR professional at UConn, I am very grateful for because he is very active in public outreach and education, but there's so much more. Julie, tell us about who we're going to meet today. C. Michael White is the department head and distinguished professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice in UConn School of Pharmacy. His teaching focuses on cardiovascular drugs and nutrition, ethics and leadership, and the sustainability of the healthcare system. And he's been selected as Teacher of the Year four times and received the university's Higher Teaching Award, the UConn Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning Teaching Fellow. As a researcher, his interests are in the areas of cardiac care, comparative effectiveness, and preventing adverse events from drugs, devices, herbs, and illicit substances. His over 400 peer-reviewed publications have resulted in nearly 15,000 citations, putting him within an elite group of scholars. He's also extremely active, as Tom mentioned, in public outreach and education, and you may have seen him quoted or heard him speak in venues ranging from the BBC to the New York Times to NPR's Academic Minute, some local news stations. You had a long-running segment on some local news stations, and Tom works with you very closely, I'm sure, as you write for The Conversation, which is a news organization that publishes academic experts speaking on topics of interest to the general public. So you've had dozens of articles posted there on a range of topics, and we're going to kind of get into it. Welcome, Professor White. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So as I mentioned, you've written about kind of a range of topics on all different things we put in our bodies. So from dietary supplements to actual FDA approved drugs, marijuana and beyond. The first thing that came to my mind as I was looking through some of the things you've written is that we have half the country refusing to take the COVID vaccine because they don't know what's in it, they say. But these same people are turning to things like horse dewormers to supposedly treat COVID. And many people choose to take things that aren't even regulated by the FDA. So I guess my first question is, what should people really look for and keep in mind when they're looking to take something for their health to keep themselves safe? Yeah, I mean, that's a a very interesting question has a lot of different parts of it. If we look at dietary supplements also, one of the biggest risks you have when you take a dietary supplement is that you're going to get something other than what's on the label that you're going to put in your body that you wouldn't want, right? So there are many examples of people who have had dietary supplement products with higher than normal amounts of uh, heavy metals, of Mm. pesticides, of, you know, herbicides being found in it, bacterial 
contamination, mold. So there's a lot of those potential issues. There's also a potential issue that you might not get what is on the label, even though you're paying money for it. So if you look Mm -hmm. at the CBD world, that is a huge issue. We're in a lot of different evaluations, including some by the FDA. When they went through and they tested some of the products, they found that they had little to no CBD in them, even though you were paying top dollar for your CBD product. So one of the ways that you can help to combat that, because it's not well regulated by the FDA, and that's by legislation that was written specifically to hamstring them so that they would have limited oversight of the dietary supplement industry, is to look for something that's been evaluated by an independent third-party laboratory. So something like the U.S. Pharmacopeia. So on some of the bottles, you can see that uh, in down one of the corners, there'll be the USP seal or the NSF seal for, you know, the organization NSF International. Consumer Labs does independent third-party verifications. And if that happens, you know that it has good manufacturing practices and that at least it contains what they told you that it was going to contain on the bottle. So that herbal product may or may not work for the issue that you wanted it, but at least you were getting what it was that you were paying for and not getting harmful things that you would not want to be paying for. I know you've done some uh, recent research into counterfeit drugs and sort of the risk they pose. And that's not something that I think a lot of people are familiar with necessarily. Could you tell us about what, what are counterfeit drugs and how do they kind of, how do they make their way to people? Yeah. So if you look at the third world, a lot of people have counterfeit medications and that's because it's really easy for organized crime figures to go into a warehouse and be able to, to take stocks of some of those pills and then insert replicas of those pills so that, you know, the same lot can go out to multiple different people because some is real and then some are counterfeit. They're made to look like regular drugs and then be sent to, you know, to multiple pharmacies. So in the legitimate drug supply, there's a lot of counterfeiting in the developing world. In the developed world, they've come with a tracing system where they can trace the drugs from the manufacturer out to the warehouse, to the wholesaler, to the you know pharmacies, and then ultimately out to the patient. So they have this tracing system. So when you go to a pharmacy that's a licensed U.S. pharmacy, you don't have to worry about whether or not your drug is real or your drug is counterfeit. However, about 19 million people have probably been exposed to counterfeit medications in the United States unknowingly because they're going to what they think are Canadian pharmacies. But when they looked at like over a thousand of these Canadian pharmacies, they found out that they're not located in Canada and they're not giving drugs to you that they would be giving patients that would be going to Canada. Now, some are drugs that are approved in some other countries, and those countries don't necessarily have the same regulations as they do in the United States, the same safety standards that they have in the United States, but it's generally good enough for a human to be able to use that product, right? But it might not be. It could be a product that has no active ingredient at all, as a a number of people in Brazil found when they started becoming pregnant, and they found out that what they were getting was counterfeit anti-pregnancy drugs. Some people get their counterfeit drugs not over the internet, but when they go shopping across the border. Mm. So you say to yourself, oh, well, if I want to get lower cost medications, I live in California, I live in Texas, maybe I'll just go across the border to some of the pharmacies that are over there, and I can get drugs. 
Well, within the past couple of months, there was an immune suppressive drug for people who had uh, organ transplant that uh, they were selling in Mexican pharmacies that had no active ingredient in it. There were also drugs for people who have atrial fibrillation or other clotting disorders that were anticoagulants. And they found out that they didn't have anticoagulant mm-hmm. drug actually inside them. So these people that need that drug to try to prevent a stroke, to prevent a pulmonary embolism, were going across the border and buying drugs that had no medication in them at all. You're specifically going to the internet or you're specifically going somewhere else because you're trying to get around having to go to your doctor. So sometimes you're doing it because of nefarious purposes, right? You don't think your doctor is going to give you as much Oxycontin as you wanted or give you as many benzodiazepines as they used to. So you're going to supplement by going out onto the internet to be able to get some of those drugs. The problem there is that one of the reasons that overdoses that result in death are at an all-time high is because when you buy something like Oxycontin, very seldom do those counterfeit Oxycontin tablets actually contain Oxycontin or at least Oxycontin alone. They'll contain other things, usually fentanyl, right? So why is fentanyl such a big one in counterfeit medications? Because it's so potent, right? That you need only such a small dose that it's really easy to smuggle into the United States and then have it be turned into counterfeit pills. Some people are out looking and when they're looking, they're at risk. And some people aren't necessarily even out looking. They actually come to them in the form of social media, right? So you're on a discussion board or you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter and you're posting about something related to pain. They found that people will get multiple advertisements that will come up and people will reach out to them with unsolicited information about how they can find alternative sources to be able to get some of those prescription drugs. And there's high risk in terms of doing it, just like there is in the dietary supplement market. It might not have good manufacturing practices. You might be getting ingredients that you didn't want. The dose could vary from pill to pill. So what you think is going to be a safe dose for you may actually no longer be safe. You can't assume that the standardization of that pill, even if it's something that you've taken for many years, and it looks the same as what you had taken before from a legitimate pharmacy is going to give you the same response. And then if it has other ingredients in it, those other ingredients may have drug interactions that you're unaware of and that your pharmacist is unaware of because you're doing it outside of the normal circumstances. Just to give you one example, talking about dietary supplements, but also kind of on the fringe of counterfeit medications because um, they actually contain prescription drugs, right? So when they've gone through and they've looked at what dietary supplements are most likely to not meet the definition of being a dietary supplement because they have prescription drugs, one always comes to the top. And that is erectile dysfunction drugs. So you go to your doctor and your doctor says, well, you know, you have heart failure and you're taking nitrates. So it's dangerous for you to be taking this prescription drug like Viagra or Cialis because it can cause large drops in blood pressure. So you go home and then you start looking for a natural alternative and you're like, oh, rhino horn. I don't care if some rhinos have to die so we can grind down their horn for uh, my sexual uh, performance. (laughs) But in many cases, instead of having the ingredient that you're supposed to be having, they're putting prescription Viagra ingredients 
inside of those products. And then you're at risk if you take it because you did have the drug interaction Mm -hmm. and you didn't know, and no one else knew that you're going to be having that interaction, right? And some of those dietary supplement products, they have not just one drug, but they'll have two or three drugs just all thrown in for uh, sexual performance enhancement. And that sounds like, Hey, you know, why not more the, uh, the better, right? If you end up having an erection that lasts for too long of a period of time, it can permanently damage your penis. And then your performance over the course of the rest of your life is going to be really bad. Right? So is it worth the risk to get something that you have no idea what is inside and in what doses. I have so many questions based on what you just said, but is there any hope of like cracking down on this or, I mean, there's always going to be people, I guess, that try to skirt the system, but it's very dangerous in so many ways. What's going yeah, on with know, the policies? The policies were written very specifically for dietary supplements in an attempt to try to keep the FDA out of that natural product market. So if the FDA has to prove that the drug is unsafe before they can remove the product from the market, and that's a pretty tall order for them to do, they do the best that they can. They're doing some spot testing with the amount of money that they have devoted to those functions. They are doing something. I had two studies that came out this year, one looking at uh, dietary supplements and what the FDA's actions had been, and then for counterfeit drugs and what their actions had been. The FDA is doing some testing, and when they find a product that uh, is out of specification, if it has prescription drugs in it, if it doesn't have the active ingredients, then they send a warning letter to the manufacturers. They ask them to do a recall. In most cases, they do the voluntary recall. In some cases, they don't. The FDA proceeds to have some legal action or something against them. But that process happens within a hundred or a few hundred drugs. And there's thousands of drugs that are on the market and the drugs that are on the market can easily just be changed from something to something else. And the names of the companies can be changed from one company to another company. The problem is that in the dietary supplement market, the FDA is fully overwhelmed and they don't have the right to be able to review any documentation before it starts to be sold in the United States. There's legislation that's being proposed now and who knows if it will, if it'll pass, but along with the, the user fee legislation that has to come back through Congress every, every few years, that it would allow the FDA to at least know that a product is going to be sold and have some information on hand on what that product is before it's allowed to be sold in the United States. But who knows if that's going to pass? And in the past, it had a lot of very stiff resistance for people who didn't want that meddling, right? But when you don't have any level of real regulation, it becomes the wild west. For counterfeit drugs, one of the things is that social media companies have to get a little bit more uh, savvy at trying to take some of the counterfeit drug people and prevent them from being able to access content. And I was a little more harsh in one of my uh, articles that so many people are getting contacted for counterfeit medications, you know, were the social media companies doing anything? But when you look at the results, they are actually screening out hundreds of thousands of solicitations each day through their algorithms. But the problem is there are so many more and, you know, they'll do a tricky thing. Like instead of an A, they'll put an at sign or they'll do something else to get around Mm -hmm. what those algorithms are trying to do to get it into the hands of consumers. And it's working. Being able to strengthen that a little bit more, I think, is going to be worthwhile. 
But I think people just need to be educated. If you're not getting something from a licensed pharmacist, then you know you have the potential to have issues. But there are some people that are getting counterfeit medications, not because they want to get unlimited supplies of opioids or they don't want to get a prescription. It's because they can't afford to take a day off of work and go see their doctor, or they can't afford to see their doctor, or they're falling in the donut hole and they're a senior citizen. So they don't have any drug coverage until they hit this certain level of prescription drug spending. And their choice is to not take the medication at all, to take the medication and cut it in half, even though it's not going to be the dose their doctor had prescribed, or to try to search for an alternative. The alternative may get them killed, but not taking the medication could also be dangerous, right? So I think on policy levels in multiple different areas, there's a lot that could be done in order to be able to strengthen the healthcare system. And then some people may be going around the healthcare system because they've heard of some stuff that people believe may be effective, like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. And your doctor won't prescribe it to you because your doctor knows that the clinical trials that have come out now conclusively show that they don't provide you with benefit. But with the stuff that you're reading, and the fake doctors that are coming on or the uh, doctors that have financial arrangements so that they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars selling these products through mail order pharmacies and other such places, they're telling you that it's still great and you believe them. So you're going outside in order to be able to receive those medications. So it's a very complicated issue, but at least people should understand the risks and potential benefits of having them do that. And in general, people aren't great at it. They did a study where they looked at college students and they had them go to two different websites. One was a legitimate one, and then one was set up as a fake one. And one had a much lower price than the other, like much lower price. And then they asked them whether or not they would buy their drugs from this place versus the other place. A lot of people were going to buy it from the counterfeit place. And they asked them, well, how could the price possibly be this much lower? And they were like, well, maybe, you know, they're selling direct to the consumer or maybe, you know, high volume will get them to do that. Well, maybe, right. But maybe you should also be checking to see whether or not the pharmacy is actually licensed in a U.S. state and where you had some realization that you were going to get what you were paying for. Obviously, the safest thing for people to do when it comes to prescriptions is to get them from a licensed pharmacist. But I know you've also written about some of the challenges in the FDA approval process, the way the FDA is funded, for example, they're funded in part by entities they regulate. Could you talk about how medications actually get approved, the process there, and if there's any way that you can think of that might improve it, might make it better uh, for people? Back in the old days, the FDA was funded by the U.S. taxpayer. The the good part was that they were funded by the taxpayer and the money had no strings that were attached by any corporate interests. The problem was that the U.S. Congress didn't want to spend money on that because it's really hard to buy votes by paying for good regulations. People don't see that on election day. If you give money directly to people in the form of tax cuts or you give money directly to people in the form of entitlement spending, then those people are going to be happier when you go to the polls. So when the HIV issue started coming out in the United States and there were clinical trials that were starting to show some level of promise with AZT and a couple of other therapies, drugs were sitting at the FDA 
for months and months and months, even though the people you know, who had HIV or other diseases for a really long period of time, because there wasn't enough people to go through the paperwork and assure that the drug, when it came out on the U.S. market, was going to be safe. So they tried to come up with a uh, with a capitalist approach, and they said, well, you know, the companies have a patent for this certain number of years, and the longer that it sits at the FDA, the companies are losing money because they're losing years on their patent life. So what if the companies were to share in the expense of doing the reviews through a user fee? So they put in the user fee, and it has been successful in decreasing the number of months that it takes in order to be able to get a drug approved. That's really good. But the way they wrote the legislation was that the FDA couldn't shift money out of doing that to doing other functions, and they had to, in effect, match what it was that the pharmaceutical industry was doing through user fees. But one of the problems is that when you have an area that the FDA is involved in, where they're not collecting user fees, like for dietary supplements, it has very little funding to be able to do that. And they're not very nimble in terms of being able to do that. It used to be that most manufacturers of pharmaceutical products were in the United States. Now, a lot of that manufacturing had shifted overseas. The FDA did not have funding that was sufficient to actually go out and inspect those manufacturing facilities. They had funding to do it in the United States, and they had a legislative mandate that they had to do it every two years, and that those visits were unannounced. However, if you decided to locate your business overseas, not only were you taking away American jobs and having people do it where the labor was cheaper, but the FDA was like, well, you know, send us your paperwork to show us that you're doing the right things, but we're never going to come out to see you ever. So don't do anything nefarious because we won't be able to catch you, <laughs> right? And then Ranbaxy came, which was a major pharmaceutical company. And the level of malfeasance in Ranbaxy was really, really high, where they had products that were testing out of specification, and then they were just forging the paperwork to say that they were not a specification and they were selling it to American consumers. Well, that was a really bad thing. The FDA was like, huh, you know, maybe that was a uh, stupid thing for us to be doing. And they put in a new user fee on generic manufacturers so that they were helping to fund the inspections, which has had a really important impact on the safety of pharmaceuticals in the United States. One of the big problems is that the legislation and how it's actually being rolled out now is still problematic. So it used to be in the United States, all of the visits are unannounced. The inspectors show up one day and they walk around to see what's really happening that day. But overseas, they, they don't do that. They give people several weeks of lead time. So on that date, things probably look pretty good. And there's been examples of where they've shown up the night before and they were looking at the manufacturing facility and people were shredding documents and other things were going on because they knew when the inspection was going to be. And the inspectors don't have to speak the language of the people who are there and there's no translators that go along with them, which means that when you show up at those facilities, what ends up happening is that the company provides a translator. But when the inspector asks somebody on the floor a question and then the person answers it, they don't actually hear the answer. They hear what the translator told them that the answer was. And is that truthfully what the answer is? 
And then the final problem is that the length of the inspection is fixed. So if the companies send a car to pick you up and it's late and they drive really slowly and they walk slowly through the facility, and then when they ask them for questions, the translation takes a long period of time, you end up getting a lot less inspecting that's done than what you would normally want to have. The FDA is trying to do the best they can. They've instituted a small thing where a small sample of products, when they come to the United States, actually get tested by the FDA as an extra layer of protection, but it's still not where I think that it ultimately needs to be, even though it's much, much, much better than it was before. The FDA is also working with some of their partners in Europe and in Japan, where they can trust the inspections that the other companies are doing to say, hey, if you're going to inspect this site, maybe we don't need to send the FDA and the FDA could go to this other site. And then we could share information on how that inspection ended up going. Some countries have ended up saying, well, if we can't do inspections or we can't do them well, maybe we can also as an added benefit, put up some cameras so we can see what's happening on the floor at any period of time. And that's one of the requirements if you want to ship drugs into that country. But that's not something that the FDA has gone down to do at this point, but maybe something that they would consider. The FDA is considering doing something, but they would need a lot of buy-in from the market to rate different manufacturers in terms of their likely quality of manufacturing. So at least the buyer here, we're talking about the store or the distributor, the wholesaler would have some idea that they were buying these products from somebody who has a better track record of not having issues or doing something else. Some people would say, well, hey, why don't we just not allow anyone who's not going to get a four-star rating or a four-plus rating to sell drugs in the United States? Sounds like a great thing. But as we see with the baby food If you're only going to allow four-star people to do it, and there's not enough four-star people, then you end up having shortages. And there are some things that you just can't have shortages in, so you need to do things in a way. So allowing them to come in, though, would take care of one of the biggest issues that we have now, and that is, one, it's very hard for an individual pharmacy to know when you're buying this product versus that product, since they're all AB rated and therefore they are generically substitutable, that this company's manufacturing facility in this place was having issues, but this one over here was not. All they know is the price and that it is substitutable, right? So the FDA in on the one hand is telling everyone, hey, if it's AB rated, you can consider this to be exactly the same as that. But that may or may not actually be true when you're talking about manufacturing quality. But in the system now, there's no way for the buyer to know. And therefore, when they sell it to you, there's no way for them to know either. In that world, in that system, it means that quality is uh, something that is not really a factor. It just comes down to, is it AB rated, which means it can be substitutable? And is it the lowest cost product that you were able to Get. So some of the incentives have to be rechanged and realigned with some of that understanding. This is eye-opening. <laughs> I have a very simple but very big question. It sounds like it's mostly, you know, limitations, budgetary, what the FDA can oversee. Can we really trust the FDA? Like are they are they keeping us safe? 
So I think you can trust the FDA to do the best that they possibly can do with the funding that they have. They try to be transparent, right? They try to take out the major players that they are aware of that are doing things that are bad, but they're limited in what they have the ability to do. So we talked about how manufacturing, when it went overseas, made it much, much more expensive to do that. And the FDA didn't have a federal mandate to go and inspect them, and they didn't have money to go to inspect them, so they didn't go and inspect them. In clinical trials now, a lot of clinical trials are moving overseas. And so the same risks that happened before with manufacturers are also inherent in the system with the people that are doing some of the major clinical trials, but are doing those clinical trials overseas. And because we didn't have a Ranbaxy moment yet where something horrible had happened, the FDA is like, well, you know, we'll look at the data. And if it looks like information from this site isn't quite as good as the information from these other sites, or if it shows that it's much more effective, or it shows that it's much safer here than there, then we'll inspect that data, or we'll just cast it aside and not use that data. And we'll just use the data from some of the other sites. Okay. But those kinds of after the fact measures are not the same as when they know that there may be an inspector that's going to go and is going to show up and be able to do those inspections. And then the problem is that when you wait until after the fact, when people file that new drug application, the FDA is now on the hook to be able to give them a decision within this period of time, right? This, this shorter period of time. So it's much harder if the data comes in and all has to be looked at much, much more careful because you don't know about the quality of the clinical trials that you're looking at versus what it used to be in order to be able to do that if you have to have a decision within a certain period of time. So the way that the incentives and the regulations and other things are now, it's put a lot of pressure on the FDA in order to get them to make choices that I think that they probably would not make if they had greater levels of fundability. But, but here's one of the issues, right? In the United States, if you sign up for a clinical trial that's a phase two or a phase three clinical trial, you can be assured that the FDA has had the ability to look at those clinical trials, that they thought that the animal data and the preclinical data, the Petri dish data was strong enough to be able to say, hey, this can go on to be used in humans. They get the authority through the Interstate Commerce Act. So that means that when a drug is manufactured and then it's sent over state lines, that now the federal government has the ability to regulate that. But what happens when the drug is manufactured not in the United States and is sent to a clinical trial site that's not in the United States? The FDA has no real authority to be able to look at those clinical trials ahead of time. So a company could contract with somebody, do a clinical trial, and realize that the dose that they gave was too high and bad things had happened and never show the FDA that information at all never show clinicians that information at all. But the problem is maybe a doctor later on says, well, hey, you know, you're not doing well enough at 25. What if we give you 50? And then they might be surprised that the person does horribly bad at 50. Okay. But maybe the company had that information, but they chose not to share it with anybody and they didn't have to. 
if the trial is going to be done in the United States, you have to tell them the trials that you're going to do in the investigator new drug application. And when you file the new drug application at the end, the NDA, you have to tell them what the results were of all the trials that you said that you were going to conduct. And if something bad had happened, you need to tell them what happened and why. And that usually means that the information that goes to the pharmacist and that goes to the physician in what they call the package insert will have those adverse effects, would have some drug interactions, would have some of those warnings that were in there that might not be in there if the companies can do multiple different smaller studies and then choose which ones to send to the FDA after the fact. And then it's up to the FDA to be able to look at that data and decide whether or not the data is right. And they've looked at some major clinical trials. And there was one clinical trial for an anticoagulant, also known as a blood thinner. And the sites that were in China were showing that the results were much, much better than any of the other places that they were doing the clinical trials, especially the ones that were being done in the United States. So the centers that were sending in for this major multi-center study that were from China ended up showing that the results were much, much better. So the FDA decided they weren't going to use the data from the Chinese sites. They did a little bit of uh, digging into one or two sites, and they found that there was some level of malfeasance that made them nervous. So they said, okay, we're not going to use any of those sites. That was good that they did that, right? But they didn't tell anybody why they had excluded those individual sites. The investigators that did the trial ended up coming out with a publication. They ended up putting it into a very prominent journal that had all of the patients that were in it. So people believed that this drug, when it was being compared with the anticoagulant warfarin, gave you better benefits and it gave you better safety when from the FDA's perspective, they weren't confident that that was really true. So the FDA knew and they disregarded, but they didn't sound an alarm. They didn't tell anybody else. They didn't do anything to be able to prevent people from being influenced by information that's bad. So one of the reasons why some of these clinical trials are so risky is on the one hand, in the United States, we did have the Tuskegee syphilis study. And we did have people with mental illness who were being experimented on and bad things that had happened. And as a result of all of those bad things that had happened, especially to economically or racially or ethnically uh, disadvantaged populations, rules and regulations that try to protect those people. If we're not doing inspections to make sure that those things are not happening overseas, eventually those things are going to come to light. And it isn't just the company that's going to look bad. It's also going to be the United States that looks bad. The United States said that it was okay to go into this African village and allow people to take this drug that they knew ahead of time, you know, could cause liver problems, but they did it anyway. And so those are some of the potential risks that we have. But very often when you're looking at regulatory agencies, especially ones with limited budgets and overwhelming things that they're supposed to be responsible for, they have to make choices. And if this isn't a screaming, horrible problem now, they do the best they can, put as many Band-Aids on it as they could. And then if something horrible happens, then they'll go through and they'll try to fix it. So I think Long story, uh, you know, short, coming back to the question, 
the FDA is working really hard. I think the inspectors really care. I think the people want to do a really, really good job. But what they're tasked with and the resources that they have in order to be able to do it at the level that most people believe they're doing it at are two different things. Wow. I, I think that's a great place to wrap up. I've learned so much from this. Uh, I'm sufficiently well, scared. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time and uh, filling us in on all this. Oh, no problem. I'm glad to uh, have the opportunity. All right. Well, that was a very sobering interview we had. So I thought maybe for Tom's history snow shelf, we could do something a little more lighthearted. And what I wanted to do was to, to go back to 1991. Okay. Uh, which was just when the UConn women's basketball team was enjoying its sort of first success under coach Oriyama. And this initial success inspired a UConn grad with the incredible name Beatrice Waples. Oh, class of 1928 to write to the uh, UConn advance with some memories of playing basketball at UConn in the 1920s. Interestingly, Beatrice was the first woman at UConn to be awarded the varsity letter for her basketball career at UConn. So uh, she wrote a letter. I'll, I'll just read a couple of uh, highlights from it because it is a wonderful letter. Women's basketball in 1924 was a far cry from last year's team, meaning 1990s team. We did have a basketball team then. We played the University of Maine, Savage University, New York University, Arnold's School of Physical Education. <laughs> which, uh, was, was it Arnold's like with an S or an apostrophe S? An apostrophe. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a driving school. Okay. It does. It does. It was later absorbed by the University of Bridgeport. Okay. And it's now Ar Arnold's College, which is a better name for it than Arnold's School of Physical. It just sounds like a guy named Arnold. Yes. Like, teaches you how to... She talks about taking road trips where they would take the train to play these schools. And she writes that after playing the University of Maine, on the way back, we were playing cards, only to be told by the conductor they were not allowed to do that in the state of Maine on Sunday. What? <laughs> yeah. That was the, loud. the coach of the team was Sumner Dole, who was also the football coach and the men's basketball coach and the dean of men. So he had a lot of jobs at yes. the university in those days. And then the game was a little different. So, and I don't know exactly what this means. Basketball historians can uh, fill us in. At that time, we played three courts. I don't know what that means. I was a side center. So I know the positions were a little different in those days. I don't know what a side center is. We played in cumbersome bloomers and middle blouses until I was a senior when we wore the uniform of the present day, much to the concern of the Dean of Woman. <laughs> we had to cover this uniform with a long coat when we went from Holcomb Hall, the women's dormitory, to play in the old armory. We were allowed to wear the old English C if we participated in the required number of sports. I was a member of the Women's Athletic Council and worked for permission to wear the square Connecticut C that the men wore. And that they succeeded in 1928, and she was awarded the, the, the first varsity oh, letter. You go, Eleanor. UConn. Yeah. What's her name, right? Uh, Beatrice. Oh, Beatrice. Close. Beatrice Waples. You uh, go, she, Beatrice. She, she finishes the letter. Times have changed since I was hanging onto ladders in the old armory to watch over the crowd to see the basketball games. But at 85, I have supported UConn these many years, and I still support them. Aww. So, yeah. It's a nice little slice of life from the, the women's team in the old days, the 1920s, when uh, an 18 to 16 win over Arnold's School of Physical Education <laughs> was a big day. I love that. I mean, it's a school of physical education. You'd think they'd be pretty good at sports. So for us to win over them is probably a big deal. 
You'd think so. And this is, of course, they, they were not the Huskies then. They were the Aggies. Everything was different in those days. Playing Savage Universe. I don't know where Savage University is. I, Me ass- I mean, I assume it no longer name. exists. I don't know. I would assume. If you, if you did go to Savage University and you're mad at us, just feel free to contact us on Twitter and let us know where you are. Feel free. We could Google it. Very cool. I love that. It's neat. I mean, 31 years ago now. So it's great that that kind of thing is preserved because obviously, I mean, I assume Beatrice is no longer with us having probably been born in 1906. Wow. Uh, but it's nice to get that perspective, the firsthand perspective. And I, I just love even things like the, the reference to like having to stand on a ladder in the armory to see over the crowd. To see yeah. the games. They really, they packed them in at the old Holly armory. I know. I can't even imagine there being enough room. And I mean, it's a large, a large facility, but still for a whole basketball some of the, game. Some of the pictures, they're just like, the crowd is right up to the court. Right. Like, there's almost nowhere for the players to go, like when they're not playing. So it's, <laughs> it's, it must've been a crazy atmosphere. I mean, we talked about this in a previous uh, history corner, but that there was, there was a riot there yes, once. I mean, like, I remember that was those, a good one. Those games got rowdy. That's awesome. Um, thanks, Beatrice. Thanks, Beatrice. Well, that's it for this week. I hope we have sufficiently terrified you about <laughs> dietary supplements and prescription medication. It's <laughs> um, not our aim. It's not our aim, but no. I've learned a lot. And if you, oh, next, our next episode will be number 100. Yay. And we have, a, we have big doings plans. We have an extravaganza. I, I think do. it's fair to call it that. It's the only way to, uh, only way to frame it. I'm very excited. And I will make sure I have functioning Wi-Fi for that. Please um, do. We have some special guests coming and that you will all be very excited about, I think. Yes. So make sure to mark your calendars for the 100th episode. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at UConn Podcasts. I am at TJ Breen. And if you want to see some old pictures, at main underscore old. Have you been posting on main underscore old lately? Um, I have meant to. But, it, you know, it's getting in the way of my public records request to the FCC. So we'll see. <laughs> well, the people are waiting. Yes. I'm the people. So. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you when we get to triple digits. Mm-hmm.